This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 413. Next time you're sent to training or being told, we got you a coach or whatever, look at it as a privilege as opposed to an obligation and say, hey, I get to do this because this is going to help me develop and become a better version of myself, both personally and professionally. If a picture is worth a thousand words and finding the right words takes time and time is money, then wouldn't it follow that business leaders could make more money in less time if they simply took a more visual approach to how they manage and lead? Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, an intentional and consistent reading is a must. With each new episode, I hope to narrow your reading list so you know what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to, and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors and their books. Today, we'll be meeting with Todd Churches, author of Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. I'll be asking Todd about his unique response to horrible leaders from the past, using visual models, metaphors, and stories for more effective leadership, the impact of visual leadership on the future of work, and much, much more. Well, I just returned over the weekend from another productive and successful workshop And I got to tell you, I'm enjoying doing these more and more, both workshops and public speaking. And as I've said before, if you're looking for personal and professional development training for your team, I'd love to join you in that endeavor. I encourage you to check out my website, readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking, or reach out to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com to explore how we might work together to help achieve you and your organization's goals. Again, it's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com and readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking for more information. Todd Churches is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, an innovative New York City-based leadership development and executive coaching firm. He's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches. He was nominated by Thinkers 50 as a finalist for their 2021 Distinguished Achievement Award in the leadership category, and he's ranked number 37 on the 2021 Thinkers 360 list of the top 50 global thought leaders and influencers in the field of management. Todd is a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU, as well as a lecturer on leadership in various programs at Columbia University. Lastly, he's a TEDx speaker, and he's the author of the groundbreaking book, Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. Todd, great to have you here. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's great to be here with you. Thank you so much, Jeff. Well, I, I also appreciated when you sent the book. First, you wrote a nice little note in the front of it. Thank you for that. And then you took the time to uh, tab a few particular uh, sections with areas that you and I have in common. You're, <laughs> you're probably as much a reader uh, as anybody I've had on the show. You've read, what, how many books would you say over the last 20 years? Well over 1,200. I've, I've been reading an average of 50 books a year since 1998, so 23 times 50. I wasn't a math major. I was an English literature major, but so I think the math works out to somewhere in the 1,200 range. And um, usually I read about an average of one book a week, 50 a year. Last year, I read 101. And I read to lead uh, was one of them from last year. So oh, Awesome. Well, with regard to your book, I want to dive in here. Uh, and I think the best place to start is, is right where the book does. 
Uh, I was probably 15 pages in before I realized visual leadership is one word, not two words. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's only they're, they're they're one word and there's only one L, by the way. <laughs> well, that's part of the test to see if you're a visual leader to see if you notice that. So that's right. what's interesting is many people don't, even people who have this. Some people have said that to me that they've had my book on their shelf or on their desk. And then all of a sudden they realize, wait, there's an L missing because I spell it <laughs> as a single word with a shared capital L. And um, the shared L represents the fact that you can't separate your vision from your leadership, right? Who you are and how you lead is inseparable from the lens through which you see the world. So when we talk about mm-hmm. being a visionary leader or having a leadership vision, that's about seeing into the future, but also our paradigms, our life experiences, our culture, um, our, whole, our backgrounds shape not only what we see, but what we miss, right? So that's the concept behind the word visual leadership and why it's spelled the way it is, other than being my brand and the title of my book. <laughs> and I like the way the, the book is is parsed. Uh, we've got uh, leading with visuals is part one, visual models, part two, metaphors, part three, stories is part four. And then we have sort of a what now, what next, part five to, to finish out the book. I want to uh, sort of dip our toe in the water of each of these sections, starting with the visuals. In one of the early chapters, I can't remember exactly which one it is, you talk about the concepts of picture superiority effect and, and dual coding theory. Why do you believe so strongly in the power of visuals? I know those those theories have, have something to do with it. As a kid growing up as a baby boom, on the cusp of bet, baby boomer and Gen X, I was a child of television, right? My parents just sat us down from the television and I was obsessed with um, superheroes and comic books. And so I, I tell this uh, story at the beginning of my TEDx talk on the power of visual thinking. When people would say, Todd, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to be Superman. They say, all right, that's great. Have that ambition. But if you can't be Superman, what's your backup plan? And I said, all right, then Batman. Like those are my two career options at that point at age five or six. So I'd always take my mother's bath towels, you know, have a safety pin and fly around the apartment as many of us did as kids. But then later on, I realized that those were not realistic aspirations. So I decided if if I can go into television in some capacity, that would be great. So everything I did was geared towards going to television eventually. So the lens through which I see the world is from my upbringing. It's about storytelling. It's about character. And that's part of the power of visual thinking. And going, going back to your question on the science behind it, and those two theory principles that you mentioned, the picture superiority effect is a scientific principle that says when text and images battle it out, pictures win. Mm. So pictures are superior to text just because that's the way our brains are wired. So one of the examples I use, and if this was in person, um, I would show this up and hold it. But if you had, and the example I use is, let's say I have eight books on my suggested reading list for my syllabus for my NYU leadership class. And next to that, I have the eight book covers. Where are our eyes going to be drawn, right, to the book covers? It's just, it's the color, it's the imagery. It's just, it's almost like magnetic how our eyes are drawn towards visual imagery. So that's the picture superiority effect that when they battle it out, left brain, right brain, the right brain, the visual, the creative, the colorful wins. Mm. Dual coding theory, D-U-A-L, says that when you use pictures and imagery together, it's more powerful than either on their own. So that's those are two principles at play here. And one real life example of this, my mother was in the hospital and she's okay now, but they would say, how much pain are you in today? And they would have a a scale from zero to 10. They would also have words from like awful, um, unimaginable pain to okay. And then they'd have visual images, green, yellow, and red along a continuum. So they use color images with the emojis, they use numbers, and they use words. 
So they're actually using all three of those together. So I thought that was really interesting because mm. if you're older and you're in the hospital or you're not wearing your glasses or you've been on painkillers, you may not be able to read the words, but the image is almost like a red, yellow, green of a traffic signal. You know what those mean culturally, right? So if you say I'm in the red zone, I'm in a lot of pain versus I'm doing okay today, I'm in the green zone. That's a way of using color, which is one of the visual mediums I talk about to communicate and to think. So those are just a couple examples of how these all work together in the real world. I know you're a fan of, of Dan Rome's work. I just interviewed him for the third yeah. time. Uh, and he addresses this next question I'm going to ask you. I know you get this one occasionally in some of your workshops and consulting and training. But how do you respond to that person who says, well, I know some of this sometimes is going to involve a whiteboard or a napkin and drawing things out. But, but Todd, I can't draw. What do you say to that person? Yeah, even if you suffer from ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome, um, I actually take people through an exercise, I'll say, draw in a straight line. Now draw two up and one across. You just drew a box, right? Then on top of that, draw a circle. On top of that, draw a triangle. You, and then put two lines down below the box and two lines out to the side. You just drew a stick figure of a person, right? So the classic question is, you know, if you ask a group of first graders, how many of you could draw, they all raise your, their hand. But you ask a group of business professionals, very few raise their hands. So have we lost our ability to draw or our confidence or is it just not on our radar? So I would say if you can play Pictionary and Charades with your friends and family, then you could communicate visually. It's not a test of our artistic ability. It's about our ability to translate an abstract idea, something intangible into something visual that people can see. And I actually have a, an article in Inc. Magazine called Can You Draw What Your Company Does? And it's, it's based on an exercise I do with my clients where they could do something more literal, like a storyboard or a mind map or a process diagram or an org chart, or they could get creative and draw some kind of visual metaphor as a way to communicate who, who we are, what we do, and how we're better in the competition. And it just is a more creative way. It accesses a different part of your brain and enables you to communicate something visually and emotionally in a way that words and numbers just don't. Mm. I know you mentioned earlier that you spent a good part of your career, and I read about this in the book, of course, as well, in the entertainment industry, in television, in California, uh, in film to a degree. And you have had your share, probably more than most of us, of some pretty bad bosses. Talk about, though, some of the benefits of those experiences. What were some of the silver lining moments you were able to, to discover? Yes, I am in the Guinness Book of World Records for having had the most bad bosses of anyone who's ever lived. So I, I don't know if anyone's ever broken that record, but earlier in my career, I was the record holder. Um, the main benefit is all the stories it's given me. People are like, I can't believe that happened to you. And these are all real life stories. It's like a scene from a movie. And yet it was a scene from my early part of my career, most famously. In fact, I always put this blog post out every Valentine's Day. It's called My Love Letter to Horrible Bosses, in which I thank them for all the stories they've given me and the lessons I've learned and how not to manage, how not to lead. So yeah, we learned, we learned what not to do. Um, again, that classic saying in leadership, most people leave their bosses more than the company or their job. And the reason is so many people are just thrown into management leadership roles with no training, no coaching, and people manage and lead the way they were managed and led. And it just cascades down from there. So just like parenting, you know, you can have a bad parent and you'll say, I would never be a parent like that. Um, or you can have a good parent and say, I want to replicate those things. Similarly, as a boss, you learn how it feels, you know, to be on the receiving end of bad management and poor leadership. And you say, I would never do that to anyone else. So 
how I actually became an avid management leadership book reader is after having had so many bosses, I was actually hired by a management training company to help them revamp their mini MBA program. And in the course of doing that, I had to read all of these management leadership books. So I was reading Drucker and Warren Bennis and all the, the classics. Um, and I got so hooked on it because the, the light bulb went off. I said, hey, this is an art and a science. This is something you can learn to do. Being a manager isn't just telling people what to do and how to do it. There's an art to it, right? So that's how I got addicted to business books way back in 1998. And I just kept going from there because I was just fascinated by behavior and human nature and you know how much bad management there is out there, despite all the training programs and coaching and all these books that are out there. One of your examples from the book that I was fascinated by was you were sitting in a room ready to do some training with, with I think it was your brother, your partner at this particular time. And just as you were about to begin your training, the company got word that there was an acquisition, I think it was, and there was going to be some layoffs and, and maybe some moves and, and nobody knew what group they were in. And now you were charged with having to deliver this training <laughs> anyway, which I, I can't imagine being in a more difficult situation. Can you talk about how you ended up handling that? I mean, you couldn't have necessarily everybody buying in and paying attention. That was probably impossible in light of that situation, but you got pretty close, right? Yeah. And when you do training, there's always, you know, the world doesn't stop just because you're in the training room, right? So you're, there's always interruptions and distractions, but imagine just before you're about to start, they say, all right, you know, some of you will have your job. Some of you will leave your job. Some of them are going to be moved to Kansas City. And this is in New York. So you can imagine the distraction. And I'm like, what do we do? And I did a simple reframing. What I did is, you know, if you stay here, you're going to need these skills. But if you leave, you're still going to need these skills. So everything we talk about here, when we talk about communication and influencing and leadership storytelling, these are skills you're going to need, even if you're interviewing, right? Even if you get a new job somewhere else. So just by doing that simple reframing, it can actually create a sense of urgency in some ways, even more among the people who were in danger of losing their jobs because they're like, all right, this will give me a skill that I will definitely, that will make me more marketable and help, and help me to be more successful. So it kind of, there's a saying, don't light a fire under people, light a fire within them. And I think this lit a fire within them and mm -hmm. said, hey, there's a real reason. Because a lot of times people are sent to training, we all know, you're sent involuntarily by your boss. You have to go. And I love the reframing, and this is in mind, but a lot of people use it. I have to do something versus I get to do something, right? That simple reframing, I have to go to training versus I get to go to training. It's kind of like, you know, when my father was sick, he passed away a few years ago. It's like, I have to go visit my father or I get to go visit my father. Like right now, I would give anything to get to go visit my father, even during the, the stages where it wasn't, he wasn't doing that well. So just that reframing from I have to to I get to, just put some more positive spin on it. So next time you're in center training or being told we got you a coach or whatever, look at it as a privilege as opposed to an obligation and say, hey, I get to do this because this is going to help me develop and become a better version of myself, both personally and professionally. Mm. I want to move to part two now of the book. Yeah. And there's at least, I don't know, 16, 19 chapters. I love that the chapters are all uh, relatively short. You can get through them. I uh, get the, the key concepts and ideas in a relatively short period of time. And so that, that affords you the chance to then include a lot of examples, right? Yeah. So Part two, leading with visual models. Talk a bit about some of your, your favorites. We don't have obviously time to talk about them all, but cherry pick two or three that, that you'd love to, to describe. Yeah, I mean, it's the saying, think outside the box, which has kind of become a cliche, but you can't think outside the box unless you have a box and something in it. So the idea behind models and frameworks is to create some kind of framework. You know, like think about a company's organizational chart, right? That's a visual representation in boxes of the reporting structure and the hierarchy. And from that, you might put that next to a stakeholder map with you at the center to see where the relationships are, where the connections are, 
who you need to know. But again, if you visualize them in some kind of framework, it helps you to wrap your head around the, and simplify the complexity and the messiness of, of life. So one example, again, there's only examples, but um, my passion skill matrix is probably my most popular model. And all the models in the book are all my own original models. But at the back of the book, I list 40, I think it's 40 models that everyone needs to know, like every business professional should know about, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or SWOT and some of the traditional ones, but all the ones in my book um, that I write about are my own original models. So the passion skill matrix, picture this mentally, a four box matrix where along one continuum, it goes from I don't like it to I like it. And it goes from I'm not good at it to I'm good at it. So if you look at the upper right quadrant, those are things that you love and are good or great at. That's your sweet spot. Those are the things where you're in the state of flow and you're known as good at, at these things and you love doing it and time flies and that's where you shine. That's your sweet spot. The upper left is your growth zone. Those are things that you are not good at yet. And this is kind of relates to Carol Dweck's mindset work around the word, the power of yet. It's an area of potential for you. So if you have an interest or an aptitude or a passion for something, you're going to put some time and effort into doing it. So that's your growth zone. The lower right is your default zone. Those are things that you're good at, but you don't necessarily love. Maybe you used to, maybe you're tired of it, but people dump things on you because they know you're good at it, but you don't necessarily love it. Like for me, as a former English literature major, people would always say to me, Todd, can you proofread this for me? Can you edit this for me? And because I'm a good writer, people think, oh, it's easy, it's a breeze, but it still work, right? I didn't like everyone dumping those things on me. So that was my default zone. And the lower left is your failure zone. You're not good at it. You don't love it. And you don't really have any hopes to get out of that box. You need to figure out how to either delegate that stuff or, or find something else to do. Now, you can turn a failure zone into a sweet spot if it goes through the growth zone. And for me, my example is public speaking and presentation skills. That was something I was terrified of and terrible at throughout most of my life. And even though I talk loud and fast, I'm a New Yorker, I'm an extreme introvert. And I always say I'm a three B's kind of guy, a back of the room, behind the scenes bookworm. So for me to go from failure zone of public speaking to a growth zone to now doing this for a living and doing being a TEDx speaker, that's something I never would have imagined even 20 years ago. But that's one example of using the passion skill matrix to figure out where you're spending your time and uh, how you can leverage your skills and get out of the boxes that are holding you back. You know, I really identified with that part of the book. I, I have a very similar journey with regard to public speaking from not enjoying it at all, being fearful of it, to recognizing that it was a skill I was going to have to develop if I was going to achieve my goals, yeah. and then working to put that in my growth zone through predominantly reading and, of course, actually getting out and doing it. And it's, yeah. and it's become something I truly love uh, and enjoy to do and in would do all day, every day if I had the opportunity. Well, visual metaphors uh, are next. So I guess the short question is why metaphors? Um, you know, if, if you're a leader who doesn't include them, say, in your toolbox, why might you want to reconsider that? Yeah. Well, first of all, we all use metaphors even more than we think we do. Like if you say, you know, that idea came out of the left field, or I really struck out on that presentation, or I hit a home run on that report, you just use baseball analogies, right? Mm -hmm. If you said, you know, let's plant the seed for this idea, let's go out on a limb and give this a shot, we need to get to the root of the problem, the sky's the limit, let's see what bears fruit, I just use six tree gardening <laughs> or uh, nature metaphors, right? We do it all the time, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, but just, <laughs> so you asked the question, why metaphors? You know, a lot of times we think about metaphors, we think about song lyrics and poetry, but again, it's so common 
Uh, what does a metaphor do? It makes the abstract concrete, makes the intangible tangible, makes the invisible visible. So if you could say something is like something else, it brings it to life. It adds color. For leaders, if you use an appropriate metaphor, it will really resonate with people and add color to your conversation and illustrate what you're talking about. One of the things I always say, though, is the metaphor can help to connect you with someone or it could create confusion. So if you're talking to someone, like a, my, a lot of my students are international students, many from China, so I would not use a baseball analogy with a you know, group of female HR professionals from Beijing, which is a lot of my student population. I would use nature or dance or the Olympics or something that's more universal. So if I'm talking to someone from Canada, I might use a ha- hockey metaphor. Someone from you know, Australia or New Zealand, I might use rugby, right? or India cricket. So you want to speak the language of your stakeholders. I think that's a key thing. But if you have metaphors and use them properly, uh, it makes it more fun. It's creative and it gets your ideas across in a really effective way. One of my favorite examples from the book of, of what metaphor not to use, at least as far as the generational differences are concerned, mm-hmm. was when you use the uh, you sound like a broken record yeah. metaphor with, I think, a, a Gen Z or a millennial. And how, how were they confused by that? Because people in, in, in our generation know exactly what that means. Yeah, I, I was talking, I, I repeated myself a few times. I said, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. They thought a broken record was like in the Olympics where you break a rec- world record <laughs> and you win a gold medal because they have never had the privilege of listening to a vinyl album where the needle gets stuck in the groove and repeats that same lyric for like the next five minutes until you nudge the stereo and bump the needle up. So they've never had that life experience. So they couldn't even relate to what I was talking about. So yeah, so, so it's not just culture, it's generation, it's gender. So find metaphors mm-hmm. that resonate. I'm based here in New York. So I was talking about um, crossing that bridge when we come to it. I used an image of the Brooklyn Bridge. I did this, a similar webinar with a group in San Francisco and I replaced the Brooklyn Bridge with the Golden Gate Bridge. So mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, they went, what that says to them, oh, he cares, he gets us, he's connecting with us, he speaks our language, right? So you wanna be really strategic in terms of the imagery that you use whether it's language or visual imagery to connect with your audience. Because I once was doing a workshop in Boston and I told this great Joe Torrey, Derek Jeter story. Didn't go over very well for some reason. So uh, you really want to know, you know, when you're traveling and you wake up and you don't even know what city you're in, that's what happened that time. So uh, you really want to, whether it's stories or metaphors, you want to really connect with your audience and what's going to resonate with them. Well, uh, visual stories are the focus of part for the book. And I think we all understand, you know, how powerful stories can be, but maybe highlight one of your favorites from the book as an example of, of how you've used story in a powerful way. Sure. And the idea about visual stories is that you're painting a picture with words, just kind of like what we're doing today. You know, if you have PowerPoint slides or you're in front of an audience, then you could show things with the, with the physical eye. But with visual storytelling, you're trying to use words, but paint an image um, in people's mind's eye. And Shakespeare coined the term to see something in your mind's eye in Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Hamlet says, I think I see my father in my mind's eye. And he did because he didn't know if it was a figment of his imagination or a real apparition. So that's our biggest challenge as a leader is how do you get people to see what you're saying? How do you get an idea of your head mm. into someone else's? And I was once doing a workshop on leadership storytelling for CEOs. And this one CEO said, I hate storytelling. I'm terrible at storytelling. And I said, well, why do you say that? They went on to tell this great story about one time that he told a story and it flopped, right? And everyone looked at each other and said, well, that was such an amazing story. I'm never going to forget it. I'm always going to remember that lesson. So he had <laughs> Sometimes we elevate storytelling to like, you know, we don't have to be the most amazing storyteller. If someone says, yeah, how was work today? And you say, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. That's a story, right? Kids tell stories, grandparents tell stories. So make it part of your repertoire. And one of my biggest tips is keep a journal. 
write down stories and things that happen to you when they happen to you. And then when you need a story to draw on, whether it's at work or in life, you know, you, you have a whole repository. When I sat down to write my book, I had literally 2000 pages of content piled up, stories, models, metaphors, examples. So I didn't stare at a blank page saying, what should I write? I had all this content. So that's what I say to leaders is keep a, journal, a learning journal and write these things down in the moment. So I just told the story. That story I told about the storytelling is a story. Um, but one of my favorites that I often tell is uh, my Seinfeld story, which is in the book. I went to a taping of Seinfeld. I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. And in between scenes, they say, they give trivia questions and you win a Seinfeld t-shirt if you got it right. And they asked, what is Elaine's middle name? And I knew it was Marie because I was a Seinfeld addict. But as an introvert, I didn't have the courage and confidence to shout it out. So people were yelling out the wrong answers, stupid answers. And I really wanted that t-shirt and I couldn't, I just couldn't open my mouth. I literally froze. And he said, the name is Marie. And it's like, have you ever had that where you just doubt yourself? You know, you're right. But if you have, you know, so that's what I say. It's like, speak up, speak out, be brave. What's the worst that could happen? So I try to do that with my students in my class saying there's no wrong answers in our class. If it's not mm -hmm. the right answer, it'll help lead us towards a better answer, right? So just, I tell that story as an example of a time where a window of opportunity closed on me because I didn't have the courage and confidence to just take a shot. Mm. Well, a lot has changed the last couple of years with regard to leadership and, and work. How do you see visual leadership impacting the future of work from here on out, especially? Yeah, I think you know, we're overloaded. Things are going faster than ever. We're living in a hybrid and virtual world. And you know, again, we're trying to get people to see what we're saying. We're trying to communicate. And the best way to communicate is a combination of words, numbers, and pictures, right? Pictures bring things to life. So many leaders bore people to death with statistics. And you know, our third quarter reports are a 25% increase. And people are just like their heads are nodding. <laughs> One of the chapters of my book is called How My Cardiologist Almost Gave Me a Heart Attack. Because he gave me my test results. And he said, based on your numbers, you have a 5% chance of having a heart attack in the next 10 years. I almost collapsed on the table right there. But then I said, does that mean there's a 95% chance that I won't? He said, yeah, that's another way of looking at it. And I was like, yeah, you think so? so? So the thing was, he gave me statistics that were accurate, but was that the story he wanted to tell? Was that the message he intended to convey? Definitely not. So that's a perfect example of, you know, in the future, we need to communicate with story, with visuals. Um, people's attention spans are shorter than ever. We're bombarded with so much information. And if cutting through the clutter, using visual imagery and story will, telling will really help us do that. And Peter Drucker said the best way to predict the future is to create it. And one of the ways to create it is to, there's a saying that we create things twice, once in our mind and then once in reality. So if we could create it in our minds, we can make that vision a reality. So I think that's one of the ways that we need to kind of be futurists. We all need to be futurists and think about where things are headed and anticipate and whether we want to invest and in, in, whether it's in money or training or in, in, in you know, human capital. So I think those are some of the key lessons related to the future is we need to kind of picture what the future might look like. And it's harder than ever. I think the pandemic has shaken everything up. And um, Joel Barker, I don't know if you've ever read his book on paradigms, but it's one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. He said, when the paradigm shifts, everyone goes back to zero. And I love that. It's kind of like the pandemic has kind of leveled the playing field and made us rethink everything. Right. So I think that's mm. this is a good time to reinvent ourselves and really think about what do we want the future to look like and how can we make that vision a reality? Todd, I want to ask you a book related question in a moment. Before I do that, anything I didn't touch on from the book that that you wished I would have asked? No, this was great. We covered the main topics. And like you said, all the chapters are three to five pages. Every chapter starts with a visual image, either a model or a metaphor or some kind of picture, including a picture of me with Seinfeld. 
getting his autograph <laughs> way back when his book came out. And then every chapter ends with what I call the big lesson, the big question, your big action, and your insight and your big action. So it kind of has made, one of the things that you say in your book that I love that I always say is reading a book is a conversation you have in your mind with the author, mm. right? So when I'm reading a book, if I look at my margin notes, I'll, write, I'll see notes that say, yeah, that's so true, or I think that's complete BS, or that reminds me of this. So that's what I would say is when you read the book, whether it's mine or yours, engage with it. You know, make your notes, circle, underline. I use different colored uh, tabs um, to mark off, off pages. Mm-hmm. So I remember what's where and I could find them. And I create my own table of contents at the beginning of a book. You know, really engage with it. Write in it. Hit the pause button. Take out your phone. Look something up. You know, make a note to yourself. Here's how I want to use it. I always say the true value of knowledge is not in its accumulation, but it's in its application. So mm-hmm. as you're reading, think about how can I, how do I relate to this? How does this relate to me? How can I use this to be more effective? So that's what I would say is um, when you're reading a book and the back section of my book in the appendix, I have my top 52 books that have most influenced my career. I have my favorite quotes. I have a lot of extra stuff. A lot of times people don't get to because you don't get to the end of the book. So I just wanted to mention that there's a lot of additional stuff in there that will help people to be better readers and better leaders. That was one of those sections in your book you tabbed for me so I could find it easily. I appreciate that. I know as a book reader, I'm sure you've read most of them. Well, I often ask a question related to, you know, books you would recommend, and you're certainly uh, welcome to, to toss out a couple. I thought I'd ask you too to share who some of your favorite authors in general are. Do you have a top two or three that you go back to often? Well, two of the original ones, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, and Dale, even before that, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I found on my mother's bookshelf when I was a teenager, and that was like eye-opening. Mm. Those are two classics. I'm I'm in Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches and Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There is like my Bible. That's my my top recommendation for my coaching clients and for my students because that's kind of, you know, has like the best of my coaching approach in there. I've learned so much from Marshall Goldsmith and all his books. And two that you mentioned, from a visual thinking perspective, Gar Reynolds and Nancy Duarte are two of the most people who've most influenced my visual thinking based approach. Gar Reynolds' book, The um, The Naked Presenter, which I love and Presentation Zen, and then Nancy Duarte's Slideology and Resonate. So to me, that's the king and queen of visual thinking. And a lot of my work has incorporated their thinking into my thinking, which I now apply to management leadership and coaching and everything. But uh, so those are a few of my favorite books that really influenced my thinking and my work. Well, Todd's book again is called Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in life. Todd, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. We could talk about books for hours, but thank you for having me. This was great. If you like what you heard today, don't forget you can find the summary of today's episode on my website at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 413. That's for episode 413. readtoleadpodcast.com slash 413. Go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking if you want to engage with me in that capacity or bring me in to lead a personal and professional development training workshop. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking or reach out to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. We've got some great guests coming your way, including Brian Moran with Michael Lennington, Stephen M. R. Covey, and Marcus Buckingham, among others. All that and more in the weeks ahead right here on the Read to Lead podcast. That's it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.